The text for the sermon this afternoon is the Word of God as the church has summarized it in Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Here in Lord's Day 13, we read the confession of the church as follows. Why is He called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. Why do you call Him our Lord? Because He has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. So far from the Catechism. Following the proclamation of the word, we will begin to respond by singing together part of the passage that we read together in 1 John, and we'll sing hymn 72, all five stanzas. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we just read Lord's Day 13. What's the first thing that struck you about that Lord's Day? Likely each one of us is going to come up with different answers, but perhaps you notice that in answer 34, there's an obvious echo of what we had already back in Lord's Day 1. There we affirm that our only comfort in life and death is that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the fact that this language comes back here in Lord's Day 13 is not an accident on the part of the authors of the Catechism. Instead, the inclusion of this language tells us something of how we are to understand our confession here in this Lord's Day. Because as we deal with the names and the titles of the Son of God, one of the worst things that could happen is that we forget that there's a big picture as well. The fact that Jesus Christ came into this world to save us from our sins, the fact that He restores us to our threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, these are wonderful truths. These are things to get excited about. But they're not just great facts. They're comforting realities. All of it speaks to the salvation that we have in Christ and the fact that we experience the favor of God once again. And this also comes out when we consider our confession about Christ as the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. The confession could have simply explained it as to why Christ has these positions. But then it goes a step further. By confessing the truth about the Son of God and His work, those united with Him by faith are given the comfort of what their brother and their Lord has obtained for them. And about this I may proclaim to you the Word of God this afternoon. The theme of the sermon is the comfort of knowing our brother and Lord. 
we'll look at three things, the root of this comfort, the confirmation of this comfort, and the result of this comfort. Brothers and sisters, when you look closely at Lord's Day 13, one thing that comes out right away is the fact that everything we have comes to us through Christ. In answer 33, we confess that we are adopted children of God through grace for Christ's sake. We confess that Christ is our Lord in answer 34 because He ransomed us with His blood. So it's clear that if we're going to talk about our comfort in these matters, we first have to understand the person and work of our Savior and what that all means for us. It's beautiful to confess that we are children of God. There's not a single person who doesn't love that confession, but the reality is, apart from Christ, that confession is not even possible. It doesn't exist. And the first thing that the Catechism addresses is the fact that Christ is the eternal, natural Son of God. There has never been a time before creation or otherwise, where God's Son did not share in the same essence as God the Father. And from this, what we see right away is that among all those who receive the title Son of God, the Lord Jesus has a very unique position. There are no others who can say that they are eternally God's Son because everything in this world is part of the created order, that which God called into existence by the word of his mouth. But there's an important truth there. If you look at Scripture, that title, Son of God, it applies to a number of others. Just to give a few examples, in Luke 3, we have one of the genealogies of the Lord Jesus going all the way back to Adam, And of Adam, Scripture says there in verse 38, he was the Son of God. Psalm 82, the Lord addresses the human rulers that he set in place. And there in verse 6 we read, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Then there's the angels, of whom the Lord says in Job 38 verse 7, that these sons of God sang for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth. There's the people of Israel. The Lord says to Pharaoh in Exodus 4, verse 22, that this nation is his firstborn son. So this is a title that's actually used quite often and for different groups. The question is, how do we understand it all? The answer is found when we look at a couple words found in answer 33. In the last line there, there's two words that require attention. It is those words, through grace. Think about Adam being created as a son of God. That position was not his by right. He didn't earn it in any way. He wasn't entitled to it. Being a son of God was something given to Adam by God's grace. God, in his good pleasure, chose to make Adam that high position. It's the same thing with the angels. 
They received the glorious position of serving before the throne of God, being messengers of God, ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews 1 verse 14. But even the angels, with that wonderful position they have, they weren't automatically entitled to hold it. God, in His grace, gave them that privilege at creation. And it's the same thing with the people of Israel. The fact that God calls Israel His firstborn son, it's not because there was anything good about the people. It's not because they'd reach a certain point of growth, whether in terms of their spiritual growth or their numerical growth. Think of what the Lord says to them in Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. And then here it is. But it is because the Lord loves you. And there you see a difference between Jesus Christ and any other who bears the title Son of God. Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. Christ shares in the eternal nature of His Father. He has the same essence as His Father. And all other children of God have that wonderful title, that wonderful position, only because of God's grace and the love that He has shown to them. It can be the grace at creation. It can be the grace shown in adoption. But there's nothing else about it. It had nothing to do with Adam, Israel, the angels. It's entirely about God, how gracious and how loving He is. He's the Father to the fatherless. We sang that in Psalm 68. And so it is when we think of ourselves as children of God. We are blessed that we have that wonderful position, but it's not because we reached up to a certain level. This is about God and His work for us in Jesus Christ. And this ties in with what we read in 1 John 3 earlier. In verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Again, there's that connection between God's love and the fact that we are His children. And the word that John uses there, which is translated what kind of, it indicates that this love is something completely unique. It's a love that has never been seen or known of in any way. It's foreign. Literally, the word means from another country. Well, that's the love God has shown to us so that we might be His children. That love of God supersedes the different forms of love that exist in this world. And it's a love that God has shown to us in His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Which means the one who is our brother is the visible expression of our Father's love. 
And when you think of how that works, it is very powerful, but also incredibly humbling. Because being the visible expression of God's love meant that our brother, the Lord Jesus, experienced what it was to have all the Father's love taken away from him. As he hung on the cross during those three hours of terrible darkness, our brother bore his Father's wrath, and he did it to the point where he could not even address God as his Father. Think about the words of the Lord Jesus at the time of his crucifixion. At the beginning he prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. But when in agony, he says, my God, my God. He was forsaken by his Father. He experienced only God's anger against our sins. And it's because of that very love the Father has for us and that our brother has for us. We can know ourselves to be children of God. Brothers and sisters of the eternal, natural Son of God. God's love for us, the love of Christ for us, that is the very root of the comforting truth that we are God's children and that we belong to our faithful Savior. And because our comfort is rooted in God's love, it means that this comfort is something sure. It's something certain that we can cling to at all times. Because this relationship that God has established with us is not a weak relationship vulnerable to being broken at any time. God actively binds himself to those whom he adopts as his children. He establishes his covenant with them. He says, I will be your God, you shall be my child. And then all that is left for the child to do is receive the father in faith and say, yes, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. For those who cling to Christ, our brother and Lord in faith, our status as children of God is not something that will ever change. Because think about it this way. Let's say it could change. What does that say about God's love? If our status as God's children could change at any point, that means God's love has some weaknesses. It has limits. But that's not the case. Think of what the Lord says in Isaiah 54, verse 10. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. God's love for his adopted children in Christ will never change. And because our comfort is entirely rooted in that love, it means that our comfort is unquestionable and guaranteed. But then some. God does something more for us. He goes another step because he doesn't just tell us about the root of our comfort. He also confirms this comfort for us as well. We come to our second point.
When you think about that passage we read together in 1 John, there's not just the comforting truth presented that we are the children of God. There's also a description of what these children look like. Chapter 2, verse 29, we read, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So Scripture lays this out very plainly. But it can also be very shocking. If you first think about these words, it almost seems that all our comfort is actually taken away and we're left with nothing. Because who is able to say that sin is no longer a part of their life? Who can say that they always practice righteousness? That is, they always obey God's law in everything they do. Who can say that they love their brothers and sisters at all times without exception? You see, Scripture is clear. Those are the very things that define the children of God. That's the way of life that defines those who submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And rightly does God's Word say such things. After all, think of what we confess in answer 34. Christ is our Lord because He has ransomed us from all our sins. He's freed us from the power of the devil. He's made us His own possession. In other words, we belong to Him entirely. Every part of us. By His precious blood shed upon the cross, He's purchased us body and soul. That word for Lord, the Greek word kurios, it refers to one who is in charge by virtue of possession. He has that position of authority over us. He's the master. He paid the price for us. But with our lives still filled with sin rather than obedience, how do we square this matter? Well, in the first place, this is why it was so important that we establish the root of our comfort. With that root of our comfort being God's eternal love shown in the sacrifice of His Son, we are assured that comfort is a very real thing. But secondly, notice that in those passages from 1 John that we referenced just a moment ago, they each speak about a practice something that a person keeps on doing. And that's what makes the difference, brothers and sisters. It's one thing that we fall into sin. We are all weak. We all have our sinful nature pulling at us, warring against us. But then there's the encouragement to fight against sin. And that encouragement comes from remembering who we are and what we have in the Lord Jesus. It comes from remembering the love that God has shown to us. In this respect, you can think of the obligation found in our form for baptism. Maybe the words sound familiar. And if we sometimes through weakness fall into sins, so there's the daily sins of weakness, we must not despair of God's mercy, nor continue in sin. 
For baptism is a seal and trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God. When we fall short because of our weaknesses and our limitations, the Lord says, come back to me. Come back to my love every time. Remember what God has promised to us in baptism, that He adopts us as His children and heirs. So when we hear of those things in 1 John, how one who is born of God does not continue in sin but practices righteousness, we're reminded of what we have in God's love and the fact that the Lord knows us. The Lord knows that we are weak. He knows that we even quickly despair of whether we are His children or not. And thus through the Word... He confirms the truth of our comfort. But there is more we can say about that confirmation. You see, brothers and sisters, it's one thing to say that we are children of God. But when we're confronted with our many sins, all our shortcomings, how many of us by nature would be quick to put up their hand and say, yeah, that's my position. It's one thing to be a servant of the Master who bought us with His blood, but to be children of the Most High God adopted in grace, that's something people can be uncomfortable about. After all, why me? Why should I be the one to receive such love and such grace? Why should I be allowed to know my Savior as my brother? If it were left up to us, we would not claim the riches we have in Christ so quickly. But what Scripture makes clear is that it doesn't rest on us at all. For what Christ has done is not only purchase us with His blood, but He sent His Spirit to dwell in our hearts and to remain with us forever. And then think of what we read in Romans 8 beginning in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The certainty that we are God's children, that doesn't come because we convince ourselves of those truths. It's because we have the Spirit of God living in us, working in us. He's bearing witness with our spirit that, yes, we are God's children. He says this is not fake news. This is not something too good to be true. Through Christ, by God's love, you are God's child. You have been purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And the Spirit even cries out for us with groans that words cannot express when we don't know what to ask for or what to say before our Heavenly Father. And it's through the work of the Holy Spirit we receive assurance over the course of our entire life that He will get us where we need to go, all the way to our eternal inheritance. Again, you can hear the relation back to Lord's Day 1. That Christ by His Spirit assures us of eternal life. So we have confidence in the present. But this also has meaning for us in the future. By ensuring that we continue to abide in Christ, we read in chapter 2 verse 28, 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Let's ask this question. When our brother and Lord returns to this earth in power and glory, as we know he's going to do one day, what do you think the natural reaction would be? What would be your reaction? Would we run out and embrace him? Well, if you look at the book of Revelation, you see what happens when Christ appears. In chapter 1, the risen Lord appears to John. And keep in mind, John followed the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. And yet when John sees the Lord Jesus in his glorified state, we read the following in Revelation 1 verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. At the end of chapter 6, we read of many calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, by ourselves, do we think our reaction would be any different? If it were simply up to us, would we run out and eagerly greet our brother and Lord? No, it's only through the Spirit dwelling in us, helping us to abide in Christ, bearing witness with our spirit that we are God's children, that things will be different. It's only through the Spirit confirming who we are in Christ that we have a measure of confidence rather than shrinking back from Him in shame and horror. It's the Spirit who confirms to us the fact that our comfort is truly real. He confirms that God in His grace has adopted us to be His children, and He works in us the faith that we need to claim those promises. And through this faith, we cling to the eternal natural Son of God as the one who purchased us with His blood and made us His possession. But then it goes further. Because knowing the root of this comfort, having this comfort confirmed by God the Holy Spirit, what we see is that this also produces a result of this comfort. Our third point. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to you that you are a child of God? What does it mean to you that Jesus Christ is your Lord? These are important questions to ask ourselves. Because knowing the comfort that we have as children of God, that we belong to our Lord, that's not just mere facts. It leads to something. Think of what we read in 1 John 3, verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Of course, we recognize this is something only possible through the work of the Spirit. Again, the words of Lord's Day 1 come to mind. That Christ, by his Spirit, makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. But what we also see is that this purification is not optional. It must take place. Because consider what we read in chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There's a logical pattern that comes out from here. 
The devil has been sinning from the beginning. Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And since he has destroyed the works of the devil, and he's freed us from the devil's power, sin must be resisted. And yes, we know that the devil is only one of our sworn enemies. There's also the world and our own flesh. But do we really think that having defeated one of our sworn enemies, the Lord Jesus would just ignore the other two? Well, for those who are united with him by faith, who share in his death and resurrection, their old nature has been crucified and put to death with him. Their new nature has come to life. So there's the problem of the sinful nature dealt with. And then think of what we read in 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So Christ has defeated each one of our sworn enemies. We share in his victory through faith. And now sharing in that victory, having the comfort, must show in our lives. It must show us through the Spirit's work in us, we are actively engaged in the daily battle against sin. It must show in that we increasingly delight in God's law, striving for even the small beginning of obedience to each one of His commandments. The comfort we have as God's children and Christ's possession ought to show in other ways. Think about the root of that comfort. It's that unique foreign love that God has shown to us in Christ. Well, having received that love, what do we do with it? Is that love something we just take in and then bottle up inside and keep it there? Consider how John concludes our scripture reading. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Interesting to note, love comes out at the beginning and the end of this passage. We receive God's love by which we are made his children, and then we show that we are God's children in loving our brothers and sisters because they too have received the Father's love. They too have received the love of Christ their Lord, as He's purchased them with His blood. And those who have received the grace of the triune God, the same grace that we have received, they are our brothers and our sisters. And when it comes to the family of the faith, there is absolutely no room at all for sibling rivalry. Think about it this way. Our brother, our Lord, he does not look down on us. He does not think lightly of us, even though he is God's eternal natural son, and we're children by adoption. No, as our brother... He shows his love for us and that he suffers for us. And not just a little bit either. He suffers the agony and torment of hell for us. And thus we read in verse 16 of 1 John 3. About the love that ought to exist among the family of the faith. By this we know love 
that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So each one of us here, including the person on the pulpit, can ask themselves, do I love my brothers and my sisters with that kind of self-sacrificing, selfless love? And that's not just a theoretical question. It's a question that demands a response. One that shows. The comfort we have received in being children of our Heavenly Father and belonging to Christ is something that changes us in every way. We are the recipients of a truly great and gracious gift, but it's a gift that must be reflected from us in how we go forward. It's something we pray for the Spirit to work in us in increasing measure day by day. It's something we strive to live out as we continue on our pilgrimage together with our brothers and sisters. And what we long for is the day when we will hear these gracious words of the one who has adopted us to be, in child, to be his children. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Amen.